Boy, if that doesn't get you right in a gizzard, you don't have a gizzard. <laughs> that is a wonderful song of praise. Before I ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we get into today's message, I want to just say a, a brief, give you a brief thank you to the church. Uh, as everyone knows, we're in an in, interim situation. Uh, you have counted on your elders to uh, bring, you, bring the word, and we have done the best of our ability through what the Holy Spirit would lead us to do, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the confidence that you have shared in us to lead as you govern, and there would, we are the body of Christ, and we don't come here for any other purpose but to worship and honor and glorify God. Friendships, yes, we have friendships. Friendships are pure and friendships are great and good. But above even friendships, we serve God. And so as we look today, this might be a little bit different than what you're used to because I'm going to ask you to use your imagination a little bit. Some probably may not have used their imagination in a little while. But, uh, but as we get into it, I, I really want to acknowledge Tim, Pastor Tim. He is, uh, I just want to say thank you. You have done a tremendous job uh, wearing two or three different hats, hats that you don't normally wear. And, uh, but wonderful, wonderful job. And, and to the staff here, to Liz, and uh, for all that she does, and then for the rest of the staff, Caitlin, Sterling, Harry, and Zion, you guys are, are awesome. And just want to say thank you. Uh, you all are greatly appreciated, and we want you to know that it's not going unnoticed as well. So with having said that, I'm going to ask you to stand. Turning your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at the first six verses. And you're thinking in your mind, wow, this ought to go pretty quick. Wrong. <laughs> Chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, <clears throat> says this. John speaking to the church. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says that I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Pray with me real quick before you sit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it. We pray that we would not say anything that is opinionated and uh, that we would just say, thus saith the, the word of God and that's all. So I pray that you would move me to the side that you would speak through me, get me out of the way, that the words we hear this morning would be your words and your words only. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, you can have a seat. Thank you. As I read through this, I seen where John was trying to, he, there's three things that John was reminding the church. Number one thing is that he was reminding the church of who Christ is to the believer. And remember, he is writing to the believers. He is in Ephesus right now. He is, he is um, some have theologians think that he might have even be writing to the seven churches that are represented in his writings in Revelation. That is, that's not really clear, possibly, but we do know that it's the church. So we can actually say, yes, he probably was because it's the church. And um, the other two uh, epistles that he has, Second John and Third John, they are to particular people as we get there in coming weeks. But today, he is calling his children, he, well, he's calling his church, my little children. And uh, so we're going, to see, we're going to see John is reminding the church of who Christ is to the believer. The second thing we're going to see is John is reminding the church of what Christ has done for the believer. And the third thing, John is reminding the church of how the believer is to respond. So I'm going to, well, the premise of today's message is that we are to grow in sanctification, continually being saved, but when we stumble in growing in that sanctification, Christ will help restore us fully. So I'm going to present these three thoughts in a form of questions. The first thought is who is Christ to the believer? If you're taking notes. The second thought is what has Christ done for the believer? And the third uh, question is what is our response as a believer in Christ? So number one, who is Christ to the believer? Look in verse one, if you would. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he begins here with uh, my little children. Now I'm not sure, we have a lot of parents here and, I, and, and uh, I'm not sure when and a lot of you parents have more than one or two kids, you have three or four. And I'm not sure that how many times you've sat them down and said, listen, my little children, I'm not sure that you've done that. It's a, it's a, it's a he, it speaks to intimacy. It speaks to the care that John had for his readers. Just as a father loves his children, John loves his audience who is the church. There's a sense of intimacy and nurturing in John's writings as we'll see, obviously. And you'll also see that this is the first of seven times that he uses the phrase, my little children, in 1 John. So he continues to refer to them as my little children. He also, you'll see that he, has, he says, I am writing these things to you. <clears throat> Several times in this epistle, uh, he uses that phrase. Now, here he is saying that he is writing these things so that you may not sin. And he's actually, because he hasn't got into what he's about to say, he's actually referring back to what, we, what uh, Pastor Tim went through with, with us last week. And what I want to do to get a full focus on what's, be, be, what's being said here, because really this message 
is really a continuation from last week. Uh, actually, I could have named it part two instead of a more perfect uh, sacrifice. But so if you would allow me to go back to verse five of chapter one. He says this. <clears throat> he said, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We make God a liar and his word is not in us. So, and then he continues and then he starts this, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, uh, he also uses, but if anyone does sin, you could really say it this way, when anyone does sin. Um, chapter, we just read it, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So he's not saying that it just, it, just you might sin, you might not, but no, he's saying when you sin, then he goes on to say we have an advocate. But let's talk about this here for a minute. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, verse 10 of chapter 1, and his word is not in us. John is making it very clear that we can never be sinless, but we can sin less because of the intimate relationship that we have with the Heavenly Father and the work that Christ has done on the cross. So what do we do when we sin? Verse 9 from last week. We, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Many of us have that memorized. Um, and, and, and so be it. That is true. Thus saith the word of God. Um, so what do we do? Well, we, we, could, we confess our sins, right? We are faithful. How often do we do that? How often does that take place? One thing um, we all know is that it takes place as often as it needs to take place, right? Scripture says that if we are born again, we have the freedom to go straight to the throne of God with our petition. So when we sin, we recognize it. We go to God, we ask for his forgiveness and his grace, and he will forgive us. So how does God forgive? Well, the next that we see here is we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now the word advocate is parakletos in Greek. Parakletos. It appears five times in the New Testament, four of the times he refers to the Holy Spirit. And they're all in John's writings. In John 14, 16, in his gospel, in the upper room, he's talking to the disciples, and he says this. He said, now we'll ask the Father, this is 24 hours before he's leaving, to be, uh, to, to be crucified. 
And he says, I I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. In John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. In John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then in John 16, 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then, of course, here in 1 John 2, 1. The first four times he's talking about the Holy Spirit being the advocate. Here he's talking about Jesus Christ, the righteous, being our advocate to God. So how do we put that together? What does that mean? Well, we we already know that advocate means helper. It can mean helper. It it also uh, can mean one who comes alongside of. It has the sense of one acting as our defense attorney. So we have an advocate in our lives as well, people who come alongside of us in our daily lives, right? A doctor comes alongside of us when we need medical attention. A teacher or a tutor comes alongside of us when we need help in learning. A firefighter comes alongside of us when we need help in a fire or a disaster. We have advocates and we can actually be an advocate because it only, it also means to fight for a cause or a purpose. So just as the defense attorney comes and proclaims our case to the court, Jesus proclaims our case to God. Paul says that we have an advocate in our hearts who works to guide and direct us in our prayers and ultimately in all that we do in Romans 8, 26 and 27. So we have an advocate in heaven Jesus Christ, the righteous, who intercedes for us to the Father. He is our heavenly defense attorney, if you'll allow me to to state it that way. But not only do we have an advocate in heaven, but we also have an advocate here on earth, the Holy Spirit. He is our helper, guiding us through our conscience to do what pleases God the Father. So, to answer the question, who is Christ to the believer? He's our advocate. He's our mediator. He is our, um, the one who fights for our cause to God. And why? What has Christ done for the believer? What has he done to, to be able to be called the advocate? Well, that's in verse 2. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right. First verse that really sticks out is he is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. Christ rightly deserves to be our advocate because he was a propitiation to God for our sins. So what is this word propitiation? What does that mean? Propitiation is an extremely important word in the New Testament. It is the Greek word hilosmos. Hilosmos. It carries the ideal of uh, satisfaction. 
appeasing, if you would. Jesus Christ, by his bloody sacrifice on the cross, satisfied God's righteous wrath from sinners once and for all, and those who would believe. We must always remember that the God of love, and a lot of people think that God is love and God is love, but there is also a God of wrath as well. God loves you and me, but he cannot allow our sins into his presence because he is a just God as well. So he's loving, but he's just. There's a situation there, right? There's, a, there's, there's an issue. The wrath that should have been poured out on sinners was poured out on Jesus Christ, the righteous. God's judgment that should have been experienced by sinners was experienced by Jesus. This is what's known as the great exchange. We don't have anything that we can give to God for our salvation. We have nothing except for the sin that would, without the propitiation, would get us straight to hell is what it would do. So what does that look like? Well, to understand what true propitiation is, we must go back to the Old Testament. So if you would, turn back to Exodus 25, and we're not going to read all of this, but I am going to give us uh, uh, kind of a, a what's going on here kind of deal. And I want you to, this is where I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. Exodus 25. And you'll see here, and we're looking at verses 10 and following, 10 through 22 actually. And you'll see here, if you have a Bible that has a subtitle, it talks about the Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> the Ark of the Covenant is a, uh, uh, it was the way in the Old Testament to propitiate God, if you would, to man. In other words, to appease him, to satisfy him in his, uh, in the wrath. So, what does it say? God gives Moses instructions on building the tabernacle and also the Ark of the Covenant here. So these verses, um, I want to briefly go down through them. And what I want you to do is I want you to imagine that we're living in the Old Testament days. We're living not where we're saved by the blood of Christ, but, we're, but we, if you would allow me to use this, we are propitiated by to God by a sacrifice this sacrifice God gave specific instructions on what was to take place in verse 10 he God told Moses to make a box approximately three and a half feet long two feet wide and two feet deep a wooden box uh, acacia wood is what uh, ESV calls it uh, other translations call it different uh, and, and he told Moses to take this box and paint it with pure gold, inside and outside. Um, and and it, what's interesting, if you have an ESV, it talks about, I think it's a, um, two cubits and a half length, one and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits uh, deep. Well, this is some of that useless information. The rest of this is not useless, but this is, might be useless. 
Back then, they didn't have measuring tools, right? They made their own measuring tools. One way of knowing what a cubit was, was actually in a normal sized man, it was from his elbow to his, the tip of his middle finger, which is about 18 inches. Actually, I measured mine to see. So it's about 18 inches. And uh, so that was a, that's one cubit. So one and a half cubits would be, as I said, around two feet approximately. So one and a half cubits by one and a half cubits by three and a half cubits. Um, and in this thing, in verse 12 on this box, he says that you were to put four rings around it. And through those rings that you'll put poles through there. And you'll paint those with pure gold as well. And then in verse 16, he says that you'll put inside this box the testimony that I shall give you. Now that testimony will be discussed in a little bit later if you'll allow me to. Verse 17 says that uh, the, on top of the box, uh, painted, uh, I want you to make a lid. It says on top of this box painted with pure gold, you'll make a lid. This lid is to cover the whole top of the box and you'll paint it with pure gold as well, top and bottom. And on this lid, you'll put two uh, cherubs, if you will, golden uh, resemblances of an angel. And on top of this lid, these, these, these cherubs will stand at one, they will stand at one end and one on one end and one on the other. If you imagine this box is sitting here. We, we have not come to the Christ yet, so replace the elements here with this box, if you would allow me to say it that way. They also, uh, so there's two cherubs, their wings are folded in on the inside and they're bowing, showing that they are guarding what God called the, the testimony that was inside. So um, one, uh, one, I already said that, one on each end with the wings stretched out forward to the center, covering their face, this lid will be called the mercy seat. In verse 22, God told Moses that from above that mercy seat in between the two cherubs, he will meet him there. God will meet Moses there. And of course, the high priest, as we, all, uh, as we also know, Christians have adopted a Jewish phrase, Shekinah glory of God. Uh, although you won't find that particular word in the Bible, it does come from Jewish uh, belief and accent. And it really means God's glory. So, uh, so, and it also represents his presence. So, okay, we got this box. We got these angels on top of it. And we, so what are we going to do with that box? Well, look over at the next page, Exodus 26. Imagine that that box is sitting on our table here that says in remembrance of me. And in verse 26, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 26, verses 31 through 33, says this, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp 
and bring the ark of the testimony in, uh, in there within the veil, and the veil shall separate you from the holy place from the, holy, from the most holy. So imagine this. Imagine that we have this curtain, this veil, if it's what it's called, and it stretches along this first pew. You guys are sitting in the holy place. On the other side of that curtain is the holy of holies. All right? Be, there's, there's, I'm going somewhere. So give, me a, give me a little bit. So I'm going somewhere. Turn over to Le Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16 says, and I'm going to read, just bear with me because it's, I think it's very important. I'm not going to give you, a, um, I'm not going to summarize this. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read the first 22 verses, but I'm going to read fairly fast. And so I'm not going to break it down and talk about it. We just need to know what's going on here. And what's going on here is the instructions for the Day of Atonement. Again, Lord, the Lord spoke to Moses. After the death of the two sons of Aaron, and then they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at, uh, at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place and this is the way he's to do it. With a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Your scripture might say scapegoat. Follow me with this. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which he, the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement important word, for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of the incense shall cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony." So that he does not die. 
And he shall take some of the blood from the bull and sprinkle it with his fingers on the front of the mercy seat, on the side, on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time that he enters to, to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times again. Do this seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confessing over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, speaking to the live goat all the sins of Israel. And all their transgressions and all their sins he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. This goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Of course, that is where the, the phrase scapegoat comes from. Uh, that is the scapegoat. Whisper all these and uh, all the sins into the ear of the goat and turn it free. Now I'm going to ask you to turn over to Hebrews 9. Tim references this uh, scripture last week. And, uh, and, uh, and of course, that would be, uh, you know, purposeful because like I said this is kind of a part two from last week so what does all that mean well verses uh, Hebrews 9 verses 1 through 10 speaks of the tabernacle and the ark of the covenant but this brief description covers about 50 chapters in the Old Testament and it started with Exodus which we just read so I'm going to go back uh, Tim read this last week and uh, I'm going to go back and read it again and, uh, and we'll be back to Hebrews 9 here in a little bit. But it says this, Now even if the first covenant had regulations for worship, and obviously they did, we just read it, right? In an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first, in the, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense 
and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn. Here is the, the test, God's testimony. This is what was inside. Uh, uh, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, two things, manna, Aaron's staff that budded, uh, the manna, you go back to Exodus 16, the staff is in number 17, and then the tables of the covenant, the tablets of the covenant, I'm sorry, and that's in Exodus 25. Obviously not the smashed ones, but the second ones uh, that he brought in. So that's the, that was representing the people, that was representing how they were to live, how they were provided for, and how they were to be governed, those three things, and uh, was, was in that. So, what does he, he keep saying? Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot speak now. This preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes in, but he just did it once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the uh, unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is, a symbolic, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with the food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until the time of redemption. So what's, why is that important? Why is it important to go back to the Old Testament and revisit these scriptures? Because all this preparation, everything that was done, all the animal slaughter was only a temporary appeasement a propitiation to God for his people. How do we know that? Well, we know it because every year the high priest would have to go do this thing over and over and over again. It was a ritual. It's been, it's been said that high priests in the Old Testament must have been very good butchers. Uh, even, even to this day, the Day of Atonement still exists. In fact, this month, uh, the two of the most important holidays in the Jewish population occur. The first is Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish ho uh, New Year, and, uh, and it, it's September the 16th. And then Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which will be observed on the 25th. And of course, today they do not have all the animal slaughter they had back then because they don't have a temple. Modern obser obser observations of Yom Kippur consists of the abstinence of certain things, repentance and fasting. So they stay, they stay away from certain things. They are uh, spend the, spend, it's actually a weekend thing, spend the, in repentance and fasting. But again, this was a temporary appeasement to God and the proof is that it had to be done every year. The full and final appeasement to God for the sins of the world is Jesus Christ the righteous. His leaving heaven and coming into the world. It was said a couple of weeks ago as Tim um, um, went through the first part of, of uh, the, the chapter 1. 
that uh, Jesus came living as a 100% man and 100% God. He lived on this earth without sin, dying on that rugged cross, being buried in a borrowed tomb, and coming forth from the grave on the third day, and being raised and resurrected to God, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing? He's interceding and advocating for us. That is what propitiation means. We could go on, and, and there's some other verses. First John 4.10, we'll see uh, further in a few weeks from now, says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation, there's that word, for our sins. He did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to earn it, I'm sorry. We did nothing to earn it, and we certainly don't do anything to deserve it. As I said a while ago, the only thing that we can contribute to our salvation is the very sin that would have sent us to hell. In the book of Romans 3.21 through 26, Paul says this, But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through the faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Puts us all in the same boat, folks. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you go back to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to read it in the New King James Version. You can follow along with me, but we're going to read 11 through 15. Hebrews 9, 11 through 15 in the New King James Version states this. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more then shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. A couple of things there. We see the full, the full Godhead in verse 14. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, Jesus' death redeems. We're not finished in 1 John yet. We're just in the second verse. 
So 1 John 2b says, for the sins of the whole world. We have to answer that. What does that mean, the sins of the whole world? Did Christ come and die for the sins of the whole world? Well, the apostle John, of course, was a Jew, right? Who came to the realization that Christ died for both the Jew and the Greek. The pardon for sin is offered to the whole world. That means all of mankind, Jew and Greek. That's what John was getting at here. The problem is, is that it's only received by those who believe. It's only received by those who believe. So what has Christ done for the believer? Well, as the title of the message, he is the more perfect sacrifice. So that leads us to number three. What is our response as a believer in Christ? This is the application, if you would. Verses three through six, if you want to know how to self-examine yourself, as 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, and it says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. These verses, uh, these next verses, three through six, if you're wondering what it looks like to test yourself, is a good start. You know, we could also say it like this. Uh, We could say, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the flesh. If you call yourself a Christian, and, uh, and, and which means Christ-like, then you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the spirit. But how about this? How about examining ourselves to see whether or not we're in the flesh? What does it mean to keep his commandments, as verse 3 says? Uh, let me go back to verse 3. I'm on the wrong page. Give me one second. Verse 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And kind of double talking there a little bit, but we'll explain that. So what does it mean to keep his commandments? Well, in this epistle, John uses two words, know and keep. And he uses them often. In fact, he uses the word know approximately 40 times. And uh, the word keep he uses 10 times. If we want to know how you know him, then you keep his commandments. Commandments are his statutes, and to keep is to guard, protect, and obey. In other words, we are to guard his statutes and at the same time show obedience by obeying and complying with God, accepting his ways, and following his teachings. This is what is meant by teaching his command, by keeping his commandments. And, I, and I'm going to rush on because I know we're out of time. Verse 4 says, if you're, well, it doesn't say this, but I, I'm saying this. If you're a parent or work with kids in any capacity, you'll find that you develop a way of saying the same thing several different ways. And what I mean by that is you say the same thing, then you have to re-say it, and then you have to twist it a little bit, and you say it again, and then you maybe have to ask a question, and you say it again, and uh, you, you could be asking a question or giving instructions, but you don't do it once and done. You repeat it several different ways for different reasons. And why? Number one is to get your point across, right? If you're talking to your kids, trying to get your point across, you say it 
all kinds of different ways to get the point across. Number two, to be sure that, you're, um, that what, you're, what is being said, what you're saying is fully understood. And number three, to be sure that there's no questions in what's being said or asked. This is exactly what John is doing in verses four through six. First thing that we see in John using the word liar again in verse uh, nine, uh, I'm sorry, in verse nine says that if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar. That's in chapter one. And he uses that same word again. He says, after, uh, after all, uh, and I, I, I say this, after all, because it does make God a liar if we say that we have no sin. Um, he said, he's the one that led Paul to say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So in verse 4, if we say that we know him but we don't keep his commandments, we are liars. We don't have a, to have a word study to know what is meant by the word liar. But if for some reason we do, God may, uh, I'm sorry, John makes it plain in his next words that truth is not in him. So what, what, what am I getting at here? The, the word liar represents what we say while the statement the truth is not in us represents who we are, which is our character. That is who we are. So let's put verses three and four together. If we say that we know God, but do not guard and obey his statutes as a matter of habit and pattern of life, what we say is a lie and who we are is a lie as well. Some harsh words. It's also another name for hypocrite. That alone should make you examine your life to see if you're worthy of the calling that is within you. And verse five, and we'll finish up here. Verse five is the other side of the same coin. It's, it's, you flip it over. It's a contrast statement from verse four. Another way of saying the same thing, but different. Keeping God's command is not a condition of knowing God, but an evidence of knowing God. Keeping God's commands is not a condition of knowing God, but an evidence of knowing God. Or as you have probably heard it said, we don't do good works to be saved, we do good works because we're saved. If we, when we keep his statutes, his love is made perfect, indicating that the love of God that abides in us is made complete. Of course, perfect meaning complete. <clears throat> Verse six, aren't you glad that God didn't save us and then immediately take us to heaven? No, we have, a he we have heaven as our ultimate promise, but in the meantime, we are to abide in him, meaning to stay around, to remain. We are to stick around. In John 15, Jesus had been teaching his disciples in the upper room less than 24 hours from when he would be illegally arrested and taken to that mock trial and ultimately be put to death. And as they left the upper room, he was walking, they were, they were walking through the valley and he gave them instructions on abiding, sticking around, and remaining in him. Um, <clears throat> in in, in uh, verse, let me read it if you will allow me to. I know I'm going long. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, this is John 15, 2 through 11. Every branch in me does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you, clean, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
Remember, he's talking to his disciples. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch withers and branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Abiding, resting, staying put. Uh, John finishes his thoughts by saying that whoever, this is back in 1 John chapter 6. John finishes his thoughts here by saying that whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The word walk could be substituted for the word live. So, so you could say it like this, verse 6 of 1 John. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to live in the same way in which he lived. And as I conclude, in the 1990s, in the 90s, some of y'all will remember this, um, there was a trend that actually had been going on for a while but it gained traction when a young youth director read a book that was dated in the 1890s, a hundred years before. This book changed that youth director's life. She wanted to put something in front of her, in front of her youth uh, group that would cause them to recognize Jesus's work in them. The book was written by an author named Charles Sheldon. I would venture to say probably nobody in here knows who Charles Sheldon is. And his name was In His Steps. But it had a subtitle, and that subtitle is what caught on. That subtitle said, What Would Jesus Do? The theme of the book was to be Jesus imitators. The bracelets that would come from the acronym, What Would Jesus Do? were of course WWJD. You may see someone wearing one still today because that message hasn't changed. The idea was to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do in every circumstance and situation in life? But not only that, we are to have a sense of knowing what Jesus did as well. So we are to be imitators of Christ in all things. So... Recapping, who is, Christ, uh, who is Christ to the believer? Well, he's our advocate, right? He's interceding for us in heaven as, he, as the Holy Spirit intercedes for us here on earth. What has Christ done for the believer? He has become the more perfect sacrifice, the full and final payment for our transgressions. Because of what Christ has done through his death, burial, and resurrection, we who know him, who have re repented of our sins and put our faith in him, can know, can know, can know, without a shadow of a doubt, that our destination is heaven. This is not our home here on earth. We're just pilgrims. We're sojourners here. So what is our response as a believer? Our response is to obey and abide. Obey and abide. Uh, obey him in all things and abide in him until we see him face to face. You may be sitting here and saying to yourself, what about me? I'm not a believer. 
I've never repented of my sins nor asked for forgiveness. If that's you, then we have good news for you today. Scripture says that today is the day of salvation. Today you can repent and become a follower of Christ. And I would say this, just come, meet us up here afterwards, after services. Let us take and guide you through the Scripture to show you what Scripture says. It's been laid out in front of you very plainly today, um, both Christ's advocate, propitiation, and, wh and what our responsibility is. But we've been mostly talking to believers. We've not been really talking to those who uh, do not believe. We would love for you to accept Christ as your personal Savior today. Nothing more delights heaven. In fact, the scripture says that the angels rejoice when one comes to the knowledge of Christ. But having said that, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've come. Lord, I know that I've gone a little bit over. I pray that uh, the church would forgive me. I pray that our, our visitors, our guests would forgive me as well. Lord, that, that, uh, that lunch that we're looking forward to can wait just a little bit. Lord, as we, uh, as we want to come before you, we ask that you would forgive us of where we so wrongfully have sinned against you. And we do that not willingly, not wanting, not, uh, we don't live by the power of sin, but we are still uh, under that struggle. And so I pray that you'd forgive me, and I pray for this congregation as well. So Lord, as we come to you, we also know that we're about to partake in the Lord's Supper and Lord, I pray that uh, this is even a better understanding of what was meant as we partake of the uh, elements here shortly. So Lord, I pray that you would go before us. Thank you for all things in Jesus' name. Amen.